There are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio Studios in Toronto with Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Uh, welcome back to the show. Hi-Fi Radio, 640 in Toronto. Jack Harl, your producer. Wolfgang Klein, your host. And we got a good show lined up for today, as I think we always do. Mike Bellamy, a financial planner with Canaccord Genuity, has joined us. He's going to talk to us just how much money do we need to retire, how much do we need to send our kids to school, how much is enough, and I think a big part of that magic question is when you choose to retire. So he's going to help us out with that. Uh, we're then going to take a uh, trip to Boston I guess we'll talk hockey for a little bit with Brian Reynolds, but more about the credit markets. Lots of money out there looking for a home. Brian thinks this bull market continues for another couple of years. It's been a choppy start to 2018, so a comforting hand is always nice to hold. And we're going to end it with a talk about millennials and consumer products with Camilla Line. He covers the likes of Nike and Under Armour. And uh, apparently those millennials want experiences. They don't want homes. They don't want uh, stuff. They want experiences. So he's going to talk to us about just that. But uh, Mike Bellamy in the studio. <clears throat> Mike, thank you for coming to the show, Hi-Fi Radio. It's always a pleasure to have a planner with us. You, uh, you've written plans for probably 80% of our clients. We encourage all of our clients to have a financial plan. The good news is uh, about 46% of Canadians have a financial plan. Um, <clears throat> when clients have advisors, they feel more confident. When they don't have a plan, they feel less confident in their future. So we strongly encourage everyone to have a financial plan. So, Mike, uh, let, let's talk about uh, a couple of things. Number one, the, 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 the big question people always ask is, how much do we need to retire? Yeah, so that's always the big question. You know, typically that's the starting point for for most of our conversations. You know, what's that magic number that we need to get to? A lot of people are, you know, very goal-orientated, so they like to see, you know, what is my target? What do I need to get to going forward? So that's typically a big starting point for us going forward. And what is the number? 756,000 uh, according to recent polls and again that's, you know, $756,000 saved on retirement saved by retirement date. Saved by retirement date assuming, you know, obviously a lot of assumptions around yeah. you know, what type of income you want, where you're living. Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, in Toronto and Vancouver, that number may need to be a little higher. Uh, probably, uh, probably substantially higher. Yeah, but that's, you know, the average number for across Canada. So. And, and is that based off a typical retirement age, uh, 65? Or if they're looking at, you know, possibly retiring at 55, does the number, it would obviously go up, I would imagine. Yeah, so that's that's a typical 65 number. Um, you're looking at 60 and 55, those numbers start to go up dramatically. You know, Jack, you're, you're, you're interesting because you always say a very, very important point. It's a good point. The most important factor to a successful retirement, Jack, is? When you decide to retire. The date you decide to retire. But so, also the other point is when you start to plan for your retirement too. And I think that's where Mike really uh, adds a lot of value to clients because he gives them good perspective on, you know, where they're at and sort of where they're headed. So so let's talk about this. And then we mentioned these numbers on air before, but I, I don't think you can repeat them enough. How much should I save for retirement? And uh, you gave me a study here from Fidelity, Mike, uh, and it says by the age of 30, you should have one year's income put aside for retirement. By the age 40, you should have three years of your income, your current income, put aside for retirement. By the time you're retired, you should have 10 times your retirement income set aside for retirement. So uh, one by 30, three by 40, seven by 55, and 10 by, call it it's, 65, 67. It's funny, Wolf, because you show those numbers to people you know, on the street or even in our office, and we work obviously at a financial firm, 
uh, and their eyes just bulge when they see those multiples because they're big. They're huge numbers, right? Well, yeah. So uh, compared to what people are saving, they're big numbers. Yeah. So if, if you're 67 and that's your peak, let's just say 65, 67, that's your peak earning year. Uh, an average Canadian earns roughly $40,000 household income. I think in Canada is now about 67, 68. Yeah. But peak earning year, you're going to earn above that average, I would assume. So if you're making 100 grand, yep. you need a million. If you're making 75 grand, that, that number you said, Mike, it lines right up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And that's... And, you know, that's why we preach too as well, you know, compounding, um, starting this earlier. We've, we've talked a lot to clients, younger clients especially, are starting to come in a lot more for retirement planning because, you know, you, the earlier you start, that number is less scary, right? Uh, you uh, start... Uh, uh, and that's part of the educational process, especially if you're yeah. starting young. Uh, and even in Ontario schools now, I think they have, you know, financial planning and financial literacy courses, and they're starting that in high school. That's a fantastic thing because the earlier you start with your financial plans, uh, the more likely you're going to have a positive outcome. Well, so, so let's review the, 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 the concept of compounding because, you know, we know that we hear the word. I don't know if everyone can really appreciate the word. It's a word, I swear to God, my dad <clears throat> drilled into my head at the age of 10. And the way he explained it to me as a 10-year-old with a paper route with a Toronto Star, they're still in business, by the way, selling those newspapers apparently, but no more paper boys out there. Um, actually, those paper boys now are actually uh, paper men and women. Uh, I see them actually when I come to work super early at around 4 or 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning. They drive around as a part-time job delivering newspapers. But regardless, Dad said to me, he said, Wolf, he said to Wolfie, with his German accent, to Wolfie, if you take $1,000 and you put it aside for five years, every year you get some interest. That interest will grow with the additional interest that's going to come at it. So the, the, the long of the short is let's use the rule of 72 because it plays into compounding very, very well. If you can generate a 7% return on your money, your money will double every 10 years. So if you begin with a sum of money of, let's just say, by age 30 and you have yourself $50,000 saved up. I've yep. seen 30-year-olds repeatedly with fifty dollars to $100,000 saved sure. up already. So yep. let's use 50 as an easy, even number. You're going to take 30 to the, to the year of 65. So away we go. That's three and a half doubles uh, we're going to play with. So uh, 50 becomes 100. It becomes 200. It becomes 400. It becomes $500,000 yep. uh, by the age of six at a 7% return. $50,000 if left alone to age 65 at a 7% Tax-free, which is what an RSP does, allows tax money deferred, to go. Yeah. Tax deferred, well, yeah. Well, yeah, tax deferred. Thank you, Jack. Uh, compounding for thirty-five years, fifty becomes five hundred thousand dollars. That's yep. without any additional without savings, which is important. Without any additional savings, so if you yep. continue to save money from age thirty to age sixty-five, you are going to be well on your way. So let's take it to the next level. Let, let, you know, no one really wants to think thirty-five years out. They, you know, instant gratification has become. You know, part of the capitalist society with media jam and everything that we need to have. Um, but let's talk about some of the things people do if they plan very, very successfully for retirement. Mike, let's let's, let's create some dream pictures here. In people's some minds dream pictures, yeah. So, so we look at um, you know a bunch of different things. There was just an article written recently about how to retire in style, uh, looking at you know traveling abroad where the best places to retire are with you know making spreading your dollars as far as they can go, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the top places are, you know, top five on this list were Peru, Portugal, Belize, Dominican Republic, and Cambodia. So, you know, all places people probably love to go for a vacation and, you know, also a good spot to 
you know, if you want to spread those dollars a little bit further in retirement, a good place to start to look as well. As Cambodia. Far as- okay, I'm thinking more Paris. I'm thinking more Mediterranean. <laughs> so, look, we're going to pay some bills around here, yeah. but we want to help people really retire. So if Cambodia is not your thing, you want to do Paris, uh, stay tuned. Hi-Fi Radio is going to help you do just that right after this. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Yes, indeed. Hi-Fi Radio, 640 in Toronto. Wolfgang Klein, your host. It is a show about money and it's a show, well, I guess about your golden years as well because we're planning ultimately, well, for your golden years. Not for death. No, no, your golden years. You can have some fun. Lots of fun. Perhaps 30 years of fun. You know, if you retire at, well, Freedom 55, that's a meth. But if you retire at, say, 60 um, and, you know, you're... Couple, Canadian couple, life expectancy, high probability one of you will make it to 90. 30 years of retirement. You need yourself a big chunk of money. That 750 that Mike spoke about just may not be enough if you have may not be enough if you have very, very good genes and DNA. But Mike says you can also spend some time in Cambodia. It's a developed market. I'm more of a party uh, Berlin type guy. Um, <laughs> but hey, Cambodia would be cool too. Nice beaches there, I understand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's just talk about that. 30 years. That is a long time long time um you know we we looked at uh, uh, inflation rates uh, yeah. off air uh, and the, the numbers were quite startling because we think inflation has been rel- well is tame yeah. and it is it's about two percent but uh jack and i of course uh, a little older than you michael i'm older than both of you in fact i'm almost the age two you guys put together embarrassing as i may be uh but inflation in fact in canada has run eight nine ten percent i repeat we have experienced in canada Eight and nine percent inflation, and when you have inflation at eight and nine percent interest rates, good golly, they can be 12, 13, 14, 15 percent. And boy, that's not good for a lot of asset classes, stocks included, uh, notably real estate and, and bonds when interest rates get that high. But we're not there yet. But over a 30, 30 year period, there is a good chance, in fact, that inflation rears its ugly head. Uh, with the amount of money that's been printed, the, the gold the gold bulls have been yeah. saying forever hyperinflation is going to devalue that currency, so much so that, of course, cryptocurrency came to market, not trusting central banks. And so there is a probability that you're going to hit a period of high inflation. How do we address not running out of money? Yeah, and that's and we speak to that, you know, to that effect to a lot of clients. You know, one of the main risks to retirees is inflation. Um, despite the fact that when we were looking at the numbers there, I think since about 1992 or so, there hasn't been much, you know, huge jump up in inflation. But we still like to go on the conservative side. We try to put inflation anywhere from two and a half to three percent, which probably doesn't seem like a lot, but compared to what it's been at lately, um, it's a little bit higher. So. The one big thing we do for clients, and you know, there's there's all these articles written about how people are using, you know, equity in the home or selling their home to to fund retirement. Typically, when we're running these financial plans for people, we're trying to get you out to age 90 without selling a home. Well, it's incredible because again, a study, uh, 2014, 25% of Canadians are actually planning to use their home as a primary, a primary source of income upon retirement. So, I, I, I the, my first question I'm going to ask is, well, where are those 25%? Of people are going to live. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess I guess they're going to have to rent. Uh, I tell you, rent is getting darn expensive in Toronto. Yep. Um, you know, a couple thousand bucks is almost the average rent now for a two-bedroom apartment in Toronto. So that's that's, that's almost uh, what was that? Uh, Twenty-four thousand bucks a year, right? 
and just yeah. after tax dollars. Yeah. Which, wow. Which and is it, tough when you're on a fixed, you know, on well, another. Canada, so the, 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 the other thing, is, so the other thing is you look at downsizing. Downsizing is not all it cracks up to be either because you look at land transfer ta- uh, costs. You look at uh, other costs associated with moving. It's not cheap and you end, up, you end up downsizing and not with a whole lot more equity in your house. We've seen many clients do that, eh, Jack? They yeah. downsize in Toronto. Uh, they go from a, a nice big lot to a semi-detached or to a townhouse. But yep. at the end of it all, I won't say end of the day because my wife hates that line. So at the end <laughs> they, of it all, they, Kathleen, <laughs> Um, There's yeah, not a they, whole they, lot more cash they, 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 available to, pull, to them. They don't yeah. pull out a lot of equity. They really, really don't. Yeah. So uh, we again, we try and we try to advise clients not to rely on your home unless you're, you know, certain that you're going to actually move out of market. And that is a, a you know, it is possible. Yeah, if exactly. you move far out of market. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking Cochrane, perhaps. Uh, he's, you know, taxes lower. Yeah. No, yeah. Well, the other thing is, though, people move out of market, then realize that they want to move back into the market. And if the market has moved, the housing market, that is, uh, it's not as easy as they think, right? You know, because uh, uh, the housing market has obviously gone up a lot in the last, you know, 10 years. Had a little correction recently, but it's it's certainly been an upward trajectory. So let's talk about this, because, again, um, my mother passed away a couple of years ago. Mother bought her home 60 years ago in Toronto. Mother paid, four, well, mother and father paid $14,000 for their home uh, in Toronto 60 years ago. Uh, when mom passed away, the estate value of that home was $400,000. So $14,000, 60 years later, turned into $400,000. Sounds like a massive amount of money, and it is. Uh, what is that, a 15-bagger, 20-bagger? It's a 30-bagger. It's up 30 times, right? Um, but when you do a rate of return analysis on the 60 years of, of growth, it works out to a 5.5%. I repeat, it works out to a 5.5% rate of return over a 60-year period. And then I have another client who um, is... Uh, getting divorced. And so they bought a home back in 1992 at $200,000 and they just sold their home recently at just under $900,000, held it for what, 25, 30 years. Again, a 5.8% growth rate. So in financial plans, real estate from today going forward, Michael, and knowing that they are directly at inversely or negatively correlated to interest rates. In other words, interest rates go up, real estate goes down. Interest rates are beginning to rise. We're seeing a bit of softening in real estate. So when you're planning with such a big asset in people's uh, uh, portfolios, i.e. real estate, what kind of a growth rate are you using today? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, the big thing right now is, you know, recency bias with with the clients. I mean, they see the houses going up. Um, they, you know, we've had conversations with clients. They just assume the house will go up forever, right? Uh, so Yeah, and, and a 10 or 15% clip, I e- think. Exactly. So and a lot of times, so we, we typically will use basically inflation as the number. Um, some people will argue with us that it's, you know, that's low, but we feel that that makes sense based on historical returns. Well, right? again, based I went through the numbers. Again, yeah. I just gave you some numbers. Mom's yeah. house over 60 years appreciated at an average rate of 5.5%. And then my friend's 25-year experience was about a 5.8% growth rate. That, yeah. that 30 bagger that you talked about, though, is exactly what we talked often, or talked about at the initiation of the show, and that is compound interest, compound returns. So, you know, you get a 30 bagger over 60 years at a 5% return. She, you know, she, she did well as a good investment. It's, you know, tax-free because it's a principal mm-hmm. residence. Um, but it really highlights the power of compounding. Again, I saw a cute little thing on on, on uh, uh, planning, basically um, Joe Plummer type uh, analysis. Uh, what, uh, Joe Plummer A, who saves seven thousand dollars a year at a three percent growth rate. The per- person B saves four thousand dollars a year at a three percent growth rate, and the person who saves seven thousand ends up with about a half million bucks or three thousand bucks a month in retirement. The person who saves four thousand dollars ends up with about three hundred thousand dollars or a monthly income of about two thousand bucks a month. Uh, so even at a three percent growth rate, you can achieve reasonable targets, but obviously seven saving is much better than 
four. Uh, to make a long story short. Uh, that's it for the talk on financial plan with Mike Bellamy. Fantastic as always to have you in the studio. And my good friends, as I always say, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Hi, Fair Radio will be back in a few minutes and we will have a discussion with a Boston Bruins fan right after this. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Hello out there, we're on the air. It's hockey night tonight. Tension grows, the whistle blows, and the puck goes down the ice. The goalie jumps and the players bump and the fans all go insane. Someone roars, Bobby scores at the good old hockey game. Oh, the good there you old go. hockey game. Hi-Fi Radio. 640 in Toronto. It is a show about high finance, and we like to throw in a little high fidelity every now and then. Unfortunately or fortunately, I'm going to say both, we got a Bruins fan online with us. Uh, Brian Reynolds, he is a uh, strategist at Canaccord Genuity, uh, pays a lot of attention to the credit markets. I've never met a person pay more attention to the credit markets, which really means the debt markets. And uh, Brian, you left Jack an amazing quote that I really have been pondering um, for well, 24 hours. And it is, as such, it is the quality of the bond holder, not the bond that matters. Um, can, can you, Brian, please share with the audience what you mean by that quote. It's the quality of the bond holder, not the bond itself that matters. Well, first of all, I am a Bruins fan, but I'm a bigger hockey fan. And, <laughs> and the second thing is that the biggest surprises in credit when things go bad are in the most highly rated issues. For example, the U.S. used to be AAA rated. I know that seems a long time ago, but that was just six years ago. But nine years ago, we had a panic in Fannie and Freddie Mac debt. They were AAA rated. They were part of the U.S. government, and it led to a worldwide panic. And then we nationalized Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and we had another panic in them. So it's often the safest stuff that produces the worst losses. And these losses are due to what? Forced selling? Exactly. People thought they were getting into supposedly safe investments, and they have a little bit of a loss, and they stampede out of it, creating bigger losses globally. Okay, share with us. You have a good, an amazing story here on. Let's get let's get more granular uh, regarding the former head of Goldman Sachs and the former U.S. senator. Uh, what was his experience with the bond market? Well, John Corzine in 2011 was running a hedge fund after leaving the Senate and after running Goldman Sachs. And he did his fundamental analysis and concluded that Italy would not default for two years. So he bought a bunch of Italian two-year bonds. Seven years later, he was correct in his analysis that Italy would not default. But people squeezed his position so much, and he had put on so much leverage with those positions, that he was forced out of those positions and his fund collapsed, even though he was correct. Because that, that's one of the most important things is when you have a sure thing and they have it in the bond market, they what they always do is they always strap on additional leverage so that they can juice their returns. Right, Brian? Sure, it's a sure thing. So why not add on some leverage and collect the spread? That's why, that's why the most important traits in investing are common sense and discipline. If people have those two traits, they can be successful. 
So, so the moral of the story with these bonds is the common sense part is don't put on leverage? Well, don't put on leverage and take common sense positions depending on how the markets are priced. For example, for most of the time that I've been on with you two, I suggested barbelling between stocks and cash because bonds did not look attractive. But the last time I was on a few months ago, I said the two-year treasury was starting to be attractive because its yield had risen so much. Mm-hmm. Now its yield has risen even more, so it's probably a better investment than it was, say, six months ago because it's yielding more than it used to. That's the important thing is valuing things with a common-sense approach and doing it in a disciplined fashion. It's, it's like Carl Icahn used to say. Remember that quote that we saw a couple months ago? Uh, some people make their money through artificial intelligence. He makes it through natural stupidity, taking, that, taking, taking advantage of other people's natural stupidity. That was, that was an amazing quote. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Which, com- which comes back to common sense and discipline. Absolutely. It, it does, yeah. So, um, Brian, the, the, it's been a tough 2018. Uh, off to a huge start in January and then uh, complete dissipation. Uh, markets went negative. Um, and, you know, May's in front of us. Uh, you know, sell and May go away. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I know you, you you like the credit markets. Lots of money l- looking for a home. Um, tough. How I would say we're, we're in the middle of this correction, and it's definitely a defined correction. Now we've you know touched down on ten points. We're certainly not up to the previous peak. Uh, how long do you see us slugging through this correction, and does it resolve to the upside or downside, Brian? Yeah, that's a big question. Well, I think the trend of the credit boom in the U.S. is intact because our public pensions, which are the dominant global investor, are still putting money to work in credit. That means down the road we're going to have more buybacks designed to boost share prices. But when people want to panic, they panic, which they've done a couple of times this year, and the Wall Street buyback desks just step aside and let them panic. So the trend is still intact, but we're somewhat below the trend of the last nine years. And if you believe, as I do, that the credit market is going to intensify over the next three to five years, that means stocks are more attractive now, a little bit below the trend, than in January when they were one standard deviation above the trend. Hmm. So are, are the buyback desks, are they stepping in at the moment or are they stepping aside waiting for low, lower levels? They're st- they've stepped aside and it's pretty much clear that they've done that. Not until price stock prices get some momentum to the, to the upside will they feel pressure to, to put money to work because they get bigger bonuses if they buy stocks lower. Yeah. So they're not in any rush to do it until stocks get some momentum and there's been no sign that that momentum is is beginning. All right. We're, we're, we're online with Brian Reynolds. He resides in Boston, hence a Bruins fan. Hi-Fi Radio, of course. He's going to watch that Bruins-Leafer game tonight. We're not going to ask Brian of his prediction of the outcome. No, 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 no. We're going to talk to Brian about the markets because he's going to give us a better answer. That's what we want to hear. But folks, going to pay some bills. Stay tuned. Hi-Fi Radio. More of it coming up right after this. Listen, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, more money talk. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Taking your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio 640 in Toronto. Uh, hey, Brian, when I visited Boston, I took a look at that little uh, 
Tower. I don't know. No, no, the, the Cheers. Uh, there's a, a Cheers uh, replica, I guess, right? Uh, in, in in Boston. Uh, that's that's actually not where they yeah. shot. Is actually where they shot the movie in that that location I saw. No, they just shot the outside. Just the outside All of it. Was done, all the scenes were done in, in Los Angeles on the soundstage. Yeah. So if if you were a character on Cheers, I got two people in my head. Norm or Clifford? Uh, which would it be, my good friend? You got a choice between two. Norm or Clifford? Who would you be? I think I'd be Norm. Norm. All right. I can see that. You'd be good, Norm. And you like the Bruins. And uh, who's going to win tonight? I'm going to have to ask. Who's going to win the game tonight? I don't know who's going to win, but I know it's going to be a great game. I know the Leafs are going to empty the tank at the start of the game, and we'll see how the Bruins survive that. Yeah, the fourth game is always the hardest one to win. I know that. That's coming Always. from Jack Hart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's credible. All right, Brian. So, uh, good piece here from BMO Capital Markets. I like to spread some of the wealth around. And Jack pointed out a very, very good point to me. He said uh, you, the, 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 the best signal as to when a recession is about to kick in is when the Fed begins cutting interest rates. Uh, right before the recession begins, they see trouble on the uh, horizon and they say we've got to lower interest rates and juice up the economy. Uh, prior to that, basically game on, correct? And rates right now are not being lowered. They're being risen. So in a rising rate environment, uh, no recession in sight. Game on, Brian, in your opinion, for how long? Well, probably three to five years. Financial crises start when the yield curve inverts. In other words, when short rates go above long rates. That brings on the crisis. And then the recession comes after that. So a a bigger signal of recession is the beginning of a financial crisis, like in 2007. That's when the Fed began cutting rates, when the crisis started. The recession didn't start for like another year afterwards. So I pay more attention to whether people are panicking or not. And right now, I'm seeing in the credit market the opposite of panic. Uh, So so, so describe that to us. What is the opposite of panic? Is it euphoria? Uh, get, Get me in at any price? It's it's chasing yield. I think is what it is. They're they're chasing high yield at sub you know five percent uh, uh, returns, or or lower. Right. Yeah. That's not euphoria. That's desperation. People in the credit market, and largely that's our insurance companies and our public pension plans. They're chasing a seven and a half percent return in a low yield environment, and that generates stock buybacks that take stocks up over time. But it's interspered with bouts of panic, like we've seen. This year, you know. By by the way, for the sake of the audience, uh, buyback desks are desks that have been assigned by big companies like a General Electric or a J.P. Morgan or a Royal Bank, for that matter, to buy back their own shares for them at certain prices and certain levels. Correct, Brian? Correct, and they all look at the same support and resistance levels, so they all act together. But, but again, so which means they're looking at the charts and using the same 200-day moving average, or the textbook stuff, which often tells me then we shouldn't be using that stuff. We actually want to beat those people, correct? Exactly. That's where common sense and discipline come in. Discipline. Do you think a buy and hold mantra uh, over the long term uh, supersedes or is superior to a you know, play off of fear and greed? Well, in the bull market, buy and hold has beaten active management. So in that context, context, yes. But if you can avoid the financial disasters of, say, 2000 and 2008, and you can do that by watching the credit market, 
then you can add some real value to that. Well, that's what Jack and I try to do. We try to add value. That's why we hang out with smart guys like with you, Brian Reynolds. Brian Reynolds, by the way, credit manager with Canaccord Genuity, paying attention to the debt markets, paying attention to what the big pension funds are doing with their money. Uh, hedge funds, are they part of your repertoire, Brian, that you communicate with, the hedgies? They are. And, and so, so what, are, yeah, what are the hedgies up to these days? They're as confused as anybody right now because they. <laughs> Misery loves company, my good friend. Oh, good I God. love it when people are confused. That creates opportunities. Huh. So, so they're confused. They had you. Are they in cash? Are they uh, doubling down on bonds? Are they buying Facebook? Uh, what, what, what do you think they're doing right now? Well, they were overweighted in those high momentum stocks coming into this year. Mm-hmm. And those have been some of the worst performers. So that leads to their confusion. And then with the up and down markets that we've had this year, because we don't know what the president of the United States is going to tweet out next, that adds to the confusion. <laughs> That's what Jack always so, Jack keeps saying to me, Wolf, we are just one tweet away from another Trump disaster. And the steady bull market that we've had, Brian, you would expect, uh, I guess, a passive manager to outperform um, a hedge fund manager or an active manager. But now that we actually have a good trading market, aren't these hedge fund managers looking for opportunity to be able to find it? They're looking for opportunities, but the way to have beaten this bull market is to have an overweight to equities. And a lot of active managers are fundamentalists, and they don't have that overweight. It's people that are disciplined and add to their positions and pullbacks that have outperformed, and that's a minority. Well, that's certainly what Jack and I have been doing, uh, certainly beating the Toronto market. Uh, that's for sure. We're Canadians trying to That's why I'm that. on the phone with you now. No, no, very, very good. Um, equity risk premium, ERP it's called, is important. It's basically the, the inverse of the P-E ratio. So in other words, if a company uh, has a $10 stock, it earns a dollar a share. Uh, it has a 10% earnings yield. But when you take that earnings yield of 10% and you, you subtract it from the 10-year treasury yield, you get what's called an equity risk premium. So again, a company makes a bucket share on its $10 stock, so does a 10% earnings yield. If interest rates, we're going to keep the math simple, were 5%, uh, you would deduct the 5 from, from 10, that leaves you with 5% equity risk premium. In other words, you're being, you're being paid an extra 5% for taking on the risk of a stock over a bond. Currently in the stock market, Brian, uh, the equity risk premium uh, against a 10-year U.S. Treasury is, is, is just under 3%, which is pushing towards historic low levels. Uh, can we squeeze any more juice out of this lemon, do you think? Well, that tells us that stocks are not cheap the way they were nine years ago when this bull market began. But bull markets tend to end when stocks get overvalued. Yeah. And we're not there yet. Agreed. And that's when that's when people lose their common sense. That's when people lose their discipline. The last two years of a bull market usually sees rampant price increases as companies do crazy LBOs at insane valuations. Leverage buyouts, we're yeah. Not we're, we're not there yet. I would say the valuations have actually come down this year. They've come down from, what, 18 at the beginning of the year to, to 17. Yeah, they're ni- 19 so at the beginning. Yeah, about cheaper. 17. So, yeah, the market Cheap. has gotten cheaper. You're getting better value. You are getting better value. So, are you comfortable then? Is, is it still commonsensical to be overweight equities with an equity risk premium of just under 3%? Well, as I said earlier, I've been an advocate of barbelling with stocks and cash right now i bring a little less cash a little more of a two-year so so you have put so you 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 recommended sorry brian you recommended putting some of that cash to work in in the recent volatility and that that two-year treasury is kind of a defensive position 
which allows you to profit from the potential upside of equities, especially if you're buying them on declines. Um, tell me something. Uh, the, the, the Canadian oil market has done very, very well, and we're, we're interested in time real quick. Um, a lot of talk on Bay Street and Wall Street that money's going to be leaving the growth stocks, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Googles of the world, and going towards the value stocks, uh, oil stocks, commodity stocks, uh, the, the unloved things uh, that have not worked, even farmer for that matter, I guess. Uh, to what degree do you think growth to value is going to play out this year? Well, over time, growth and value kind of balance each other out. Uh-huh. So if growth has had an extended run, then you'd be wanting to go to value stocks because that's part of that discipline right. and that common that I was talking about. Because at the end, over a 14- or 15-year bull market, growth and value are going to balance each other out. So it makes sense to buy the thing that's down and out as opposed to the thing that's overvalued. Yeah, well, that's, that, that's called rebalancing your portfolio. Uh, good, good mm-hmm. advice. Uh, Brian Reynolds, enjoy the game tonight. Uh, I'm not going to say good luck to Boston. You guys don't need it, but you please wish us some luck uh, from Boston uh, to the Leafers. Uh, they, they're playing a tough game, and boy, you're certainly challenging them. Markets have been challenging us, and Brian, you're helping us manage those challenges. Much appreciated. Brian Reynolds, live from Boston. Coming up next, we're going to take a trip to New York City and speak with Camilo Line. He covers consumer stocks, including the likes of Nike and Under Armour and Steve Madden Shoes. Hang tuned. we got something for you special right after this. Making money is the best. So how do you make more money? Come on back after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Artists like Steve come along once every decade. I'm talking Giorgio Armani, Gianni Versace, Coco Chanel, Yves Saint Laurent. Steve, come up here for a second. I don't think you all realize that Steve Madden is the hottest person in the women's shoe industry with orders going through the roof at every department store in North America right now. We have him here at our office. We should thank our lucky stars this man is here. There you go. Hi-Fi Radio. 640 in Toronto. Yes, the Wolf of Wall Street, Steve Madden Shoes. Uh, you know, I thought that was just a storyline. I don't pay a lot of attention to, to women's shoes. I like shoes, just don't pay attention to the brands. But apparently that is a real brand. And Camilla Lyon, analyst with Canonical Ingenuity, uh, covers Steve Madden along with Nike and Roots and the Goose, Canada Goose. Yes, indeed, he covers that stock as well. Uh, so real pleasure, Camilla, to have you on Hi-Fi Radio again. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, n- no, it's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure. Um you know, very, very topical, as you know, are millennials and uh, the fact that, well, they don't want stuff, they want experiences. Uh, do millennial ladies buy Steve Madden shoes? They do. Okay, so they, they want they want the nice shoe. Okay. They want value. They want... Well, who doesn't want value? I want value. Jack, oh my God, Jack's about as cheap as they get. No offense, Jack. I'm cheap, too. I drive a 14-year-old Volkswagen a diesel, so I want value. What's the difference about them wanting value? Well, they want it all, right? I think the millennial is a... Um, it's an interesting consumer because at no other time in retail has there been the amount of disruption that we've seen in the past two years. And I think that... Yeah, but, but that's probably more Amazon as opposed to the, the consumer well, itself, no? Well, I mean, one has to drive the other, right? So let's talk about the Amazon effect, and I think that there's two paths that retail is going down. <clears throat> the first is the transactional path, and that's where Amazon comes into play, and mm-hmm. they're unequivocally the best transactor in, in the world. And if 
you go down that path, you better hope that you can beat them. Good um, luck. Because they will beat and eat you. Yep. The other path is the experiential path. And I would say that Amazon is probably the worst experience from, uh, from that perspective in the sense that if you don't know what you want, going on to, uh, to Amazon and searching for a pair of Nike running shoes will completely overwhelm you with the 60,000 responses that you get. Mm-hmm. That's not a good experience. Mm-hmm. So to your, to your initial question, the millennial wants to have a good experience when they shop, and they're willing to spend for that. So that's where companies and brands and retailers are investing a great deal of money in creating an experiential connection that is longer lasting than a transaction and hopefully increases the lifetime value of that customer. So, so with that experience, they're obviously willing to pay a premium price? They are because they're getting more than just a product. Something they can tweet about, something you put on their Instagram, something that they show Take off on Facebook. Selfies, kind of. selfies. All, absolutely, all those things have become much more relevant. That social currency is incredibly valuable, um, and it's more so to, to millennials than than ever before, or than anything any other cohort really. Um, the ability to to Instagram a moment and to um, show your friends and your followers that you are at Coachella or at Burning Man or at a concert or a mountain peak in Kenya. Um, that's, that's, there's social currency that really drives that, that uh, intent, um, and, and that's the experiential piece that we talk a lot about. Um, and the product-driven companies are trying to understand and figure out ways to layer that experience into their, uh, into their brand and into, the, into their assortment. Let's talk about brands. Um, you know, gone are the days of big logos, uh, conspicuous logos. Um, but I don't know. My kids still like brands. Uh, uh, Adidas, obviously, a very hot brand. Champion, uh, a brand that has come back, uh, very very hot. Uh, Under Armour, cold as ice. Um, Canada Goose, hotter than hot. Uh, Roots, sort of in between, but above IPO price. So it's actually great that a New York analyst is covering the goose, a big Canadian iconic story, and same with Roots. Uh, so to start with those two companies, uh, prospects for those two companies in, you know, in the longer term against what you're talking about, this experience and uh, value and uh, the, the Amazons of the world. How do, how do they stand up against those two? Well, certainly brands have an advantage, right? Because there's inherent value to the brand, right? Amazon... Um, unless you're competing with kind of low-level basics, um, a brand will usually have some sort of greater value um, than something that Amazon can try and recreate, historically. Mm-hmm. Um, with, as it relates to Roots, and they reported this past uh, Wednesday, so we can talk about them, put up great numbers, solid numbers. And, and for those folks in Toronto that haven't been to the, the Yorkdale Mall recently, I encourage you to go out and, and check the Roots store. It's truly an expression of this experiential store format that is driving, I think, a lot of that that um, re-energized kind of energy into the business and into the experience of going into stores. Hmm. Um, so they understand exactly what they need to do and are, and are making moves to incorporate that into all parts of their stores. Hmm. Um, what I'll say high level from a Roots perspective is that the current management team that's been there now, call it around two years or so. Hmm. Um, is doing a really solid job of taking a brand that virtually everybody in Canada knows, but making it making the business run more efficiently and professionally. Very good. Um, 
Uh, Camilla, yeah. here's what I got to do, my friend, because I want you to stay on this Roots topic. And I also want to jump over to Lululemon in the competition sure. from Amazon. But we got to pay a few bills around here, uh, you know, run some consumer ads and promote some other brands. So let us do that and get right back to Camilla Lyon, analyst with Canaccord Genuity, covers some consumer and retail brands. And we're talking millennials right after this. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. And these children that you spit on As they try to change their worlds oh, They're immune to your consultations <laughs> They're quite aware of what they're going through There you go. Lots of them, eh? Lots of changes. And the millennials, yes, indeed, are kids and kids of the boomers. But I guess the millennials, eh, Jack? Uh, first one's born in around 1982. Last millennial, I think, was born at the turn of the century. So I 2000. think so, yeah. Yeah, so about 18 years of millennials Maybe 96 or something like that. Um, and again, you know, a, a key um, part of uh, Tony Dwyer's uh, thesis, uh, Camillo, Camillo Lyme, by the way, uh, in New York with us here, uh, he covers consumer retail stocks, uh, the likes of Canada Goose and uh, Roots and Nike and because of the good brands. But uh, a key part of the thesis that Tony Dwyer has, why he remains quite bullish, is what's called household formations. Um, uh, children of the baby boomers are, as they turn 30, will begin, well, putting aside the experiences and getting back down to home-style living where they buy a house and a car and a refrigerator and a washing machine and watch everyone else have the experience as they raise their own kids with new experiences coming at them. <laughs> oh, yeah, hey, Jack, those new experiences. Absolutely. Of, of three kids. They all love Jack loves Monday mornings, so he does. <laughs> Both but the kids are I would say the, the, ba- the baby boomers really define the demographics on how powerful demographics are for uh, consumers and for retail because they really shaped, obviously, the, you know, the 80s and the power of the 80s and all the consumption that went on back then, and it showed people how powerful demographics are uh, when you're, you know, targeting and target marketing. Yeah, no doubt. Well, look, you know, Amazon, by the way, I want to come start with this one here, Camillo. I, I know a number of people um, of, 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 of uh, well, a number of people who will shop Amazon, not really know what they want. So they're going to order six pair of shoes and return five that didn't fit or they didn't like and keep one. Um, that has to be very costly for a company like Amazon. That must be an unprofitable transaction. I know a number of people doing just that. Uh Unlike regular retail, we actually get to try the shoe on or try the jacket on. Yeah, you may return it, but the probability of returning is a lot less, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's definitely not what you want to put into your business plan if you're starting the business, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and Zappos is a good example of that. You know, they at one point did call it a billion in sales, but um, a gross sales, but on a net basis, it was more like $650 million because they'd get 35% returns. So yeah. to your point... So the question is how do companies like Amazon combat that? And I think there's a lot that's happening on the technology side to help the consumer improve knowledge of fit um, and look and the things that you would, qualities that you would want to uh, see and and, and tick off when you're buying something so that it reduces the risk of return. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about the three dominant brands here. We got Nike, Adidas, and I don't know, it was the third runner. Under Armour? Under Armour, Under Armour for sure. sure. For sports, right? Um, Under Armour was so hot. Uh, it was a Seth, Jack, uh, that, that was a big supporter. Uh, who, who was a big uh, carrier of that brand, Under Armour? I thought Seth, the, the, the golfer. 
Oh, Spieth. Yeah, Spieth, Jordan, Jordan Spieth. Spieth. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and he was supposed to, you know, help lift the brand, uh, mm-hmm. but it, but it, it ran into some trouble. Uh, and then in the background, you have Adidas uh, all of a sudden becoming such a powerful brand. Uh, it, it's amazing how that that baton it just goes from Nike to Under Armour to Adidas. Uh, you know, these, these brands. Well, Adidas is a hundred year old brand, I think, isn't it, uh, Camillo? Yeah, thereabouts. Um, it just tells you what. It depicts the cyclicality of retail, um, but more importantly, it tells you how smart the consumer is, and certainly how smart this, the consumer has become, how available information is to that consumer at the swipe of a screen, um, and what that means is that brands it, it must be so on top of their design game can't be followers, they have to be leaders, they have to be quick to market, um, and they have to be quick to market with product that's new and innovative um, at a pace that they've never seen before. So design is um, key. This, this whole industry is about product. Who wants to buy crappy product? Not me. Yeah. Well, the other thing and, you said, I think the other thing that you mentioned to us off-air, Camilla, was uh, these companies, they have to think global but act local, meaning mm-hmm. targeting their local markets. Yeah, and let's end it with Lululemon again. Another Canadian icon story. Um, Amazon now wants to compete with Lulu, creating its own what athletic wear under its own brand. Um, are they moving forward with that threat? And do you think they're going to succeed? Because Lululemon stock actually has done quite well recently, hasn't it? They have. They've done a great job of subverting a lot of the threats that have been in the marketplace. Um, you know, and it's it's definitely put itself uh, in the higher end category. Um, but I think Which is, I think, where you want to be, correct? Correct, correct. Yeah. That's where you have pricing power. It's difficult to disrupt someone at that high end. Yeah, but again, Can- you have Kent's to Canada Goods, Roots, yeah. Yeah, you have to continue to invest in that premium positioning, right? Right. With design and quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if someone like Amazon is coming into a category, it should make everyone shudder. <laughs> um, regardless of their success or the future success, it definitely bears watching, and it definitely should make those brands that are uh, the incumbents sharper on their toes and make sure that they continue to be thought leaders and, and product leaders. You know, the annual shareholder letter uh, from Jeff Bezos to uh, uh, shareholders of Amazon uh, was sent around the office and the summary of it, uh, you know, and just, just touting their success uh, and yet touting the importance of, 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 of employee commitment to excellence uh, and, and never resting on your laurels uh, to the point of being cultish. And I said, boy, oh, boy, they have a big jug of Kool-Aid and they are passing it around and people are sipping it. And But you're seeing the share price, a company that trades at, what, 200 times earnings? Ridiculous. Wall Street doesn't care because they buy into the long-term story of such companies. So what a brand. Uh, 100 million, what is it? 100 million prime customers now, Jack? I think that's right. Yeah. And you know what? They're really challenging the competition and forcing the competition to be better. And that's what Camillo's talking about. What about Foot Locker? I would end on that note there. Uh, Retail uh, uh, shoes. Uh, Are they going to survive? Foot Locker? Yeah. They will, eh? There's no, and the very simple reason is that Nike has zero desire to own stores. Mm -hmm. And that that continues to be a very um, important method of distribution. Um, for and to its customer, for Nike and to its customer, uh, that they do not want to, um, you know, turn their back on. So, or for that matter, open up for another competitor like Adidas to come in and take that 
that shelf space. Mm-hmm. It's not going away. It's not going away. I think, again, I'll go back to you know, the, the foundational ethos of this category in that everything is product, product, product. If you've got good product, pricing follows, uh, sell-through follows. It can almost trump macro um, changes and disturbances. Um, if there is a good shoe that people want to go out and buy. The four P's of marketing, eh, Camilla? Product, exactly. price, place, promotion. That's it for Hi-Fi Radio. It's been an absolute pleasure being with you today. Jack and I, of course, look forward to being with you each and every Saturday. Tell your friends it's a show to help you make some money. Hi-Fi Radio on 640 in Toronto. Listening to Hi Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi Fi Radio for the love of money. We'll see you next week.